started your song within like a millisecond of me hitting record I and mean, you were on the money yeah, on dude. that one father peter yeah because uh you're listening to the word on the hill with the lanky guys <laughs> yes we are the we are all of those i am scott powell and i am scott powell too I think Everybody that I am. wishes they were, but they're not. None, I know. None, none are. Dude, and if they really knew me, they would not wish they were. So right now I wish I was you because I have a life goal of learning how to surf. Ah, uh, yes, I did just surf. Dude, I mean, I, and you have this picture. He showed me this picture of him running over some other surfer dude where he's like jumping off of his board. It's I wasn't totally, jumping off of my board. No, no, no. The other guy, this, because yeah. you're, dude, you're, you're a powerhouse. You're like a train. Well, this guy didn't, he was, he didn't know what he was doing and he was surfing it like right into me and I was just going to go. Anyway, I just got back from vacation, and there was surfing involved. And Surf it, was fun. it was up. Showing Father Peter some pictures. But that's why we were off last week, as right. you heard. But I, I still managed to get in. We got a rerun up that I listened to, and Dude, I didn't edit it. Do you, you, you? I'm sure you didn't listen last week. I did. I have to say that was a really good podcast. Well, it was kind of cool that it happened to be the live one, because it was actually really fun. Yeah. And it's got everybody ready and hopefully excited for our big event next Tuesday. Is Tuesday. that next Tuesday? Yep, next yeah, Tuesday. Thanksgiving's a couple days away. So we're early this week because this, this is a weird week. You got Thursday is Thanksgiving, so we're not recording. I don't know how many people are listening because a lot of people listen on their commutes. And so I don't know. You know, This week is where you do whatever you want to. It's going to be up on Tuesday. <laughs> listen to it if you want to. Listen to it next Thursday if you want to. Whatever. Um, but next Tuesday, after Thanksgiving, uh, is Giving Tuesday. Right, all across the land. <laughs> and hopefully you were inspired after all the tryptophan has worn off and you've woken up from your long winter's naps to to give back a little bit. And I love what we do. And so if you want to help in what we do and support what we do here, then tune in next Tuesday. It's 10.30 Mountain Time, right? Colorado. Next Tuesday, next we're going to be live, podcasting live from Drogo's Coffee Shop. So if you're around, come by Drogo's, grab a cup of coffee. If you're not live, if you're not here in Colorado, then watch on Facebook Live. It's going to be on the, if you just search for for Buffalo Catholic or St. Thomas Aquinas Catholic Center, you'll find us on Facebook. We're going to be fo- uh, focusing, fo- pod- podcasting, <laughs> live, live Facebooking, Facebooking live podcasting <laughs> from that platform, from the Thomas Center, from the Buffalo Catholic uh, Facebook site. So we'll put links to that on our Facebook site and we'll send out some stuff. Um, it's going to be awesome. Twenty-one, The Luke 21 Challenge, right? $21,000. In 21 hours. And if and if that happens, we get to dump a bucket of ice water all over Scott. Thanks, man. Or a carafe of coffee, of burning hot coffee. <laughs> burning hot coffee. All over Dude, Scott. Dude, why you don't they have that as the challenge? Yes, <laughs> like, that's... I'll, I'll pour burning hot coffee all over my friend. <laughs> For some unspoken charity. Anyway, tune in next Tuesday. Tune in right now. I mean, don't don't just turn it yeah. off when we finish. Keep, keep which, listening. Which leads us to the fact that today uh, we are going over the Solemnity of Christ the King of the Universe. Which I like to call He-Man Sunday. Dude, He-Man Sunday. I like, thought of that on the drive here this morning. Dude, that's like, exactly, oh, Father Peter's going to love that. No, that's exactly what it and is. And I don't know why we've never thought of calling it He-Man Sunday. I don't know. And then we can call uh, the Assumption of Mary She-Ra. Tuesday or whatever day that, that is. Is that too much? Yeah, that's I think, too far. I, th- I, th- okay. I, I think that's hashtag too far. Oh, shoot. <laughs> I wish you hadn't hashtagged it. <laughs> okay, anyway. Uh, dude, 
I'll so tell you. Is this the last Sunday before Advent begins? Am I right on that? Or is there one? Yeah, more? yeah. This is the last Sunday of Advent before this is the last it begins. Hurrah. No, that's not. You said that wrong. <laughs> I did. I, I went to see. <laughs> like a little brother. No, it's not. I wanted to see how fast you were today. Pretty fast. Yeah, you were pretty on it, man. And I'm not even up on my coffee. Okay, so next. So this is it. This is it. Ordinary time is done. Come Sunday. This is what we've been counting on so this whole time. put up the Christmas lights and let's all get sick of everything by Christmas Eve. Let's do it. I'm so I've gotten my kids so annoyed. I've taught them well. They are so annoyed every time we've gone into the stores and be like, "Ugh, there's Christmas stuff everywhere. It's not even Thanksgiving." I'm like, "I'm so proud of you guys. I've made you. I've given you the same cynicism that I have." Dude, it's it's you know neuroticism passed it's on to your neuroticism, children. and that's not even a word. <laughs> <laughs> Neuroses. All right. It is the solemnity of Christ the King. Lord. Wait. It is the solemnity of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe. He man Sunday. <laughs> knowing is half the battle. Wow, good pull. Except for that was G.I. Joe. Oh. I was I was gonna it was vaguely familiar and I just because, trusted you because completely. it's it's like right in that same place where Yeah. I'm sure they were like played back to back in some Okay, we, let's, let's, okay, let's actually talk Our about first reading today. I'm trying It's from to, Daniel 7, 13 oh to 14. Oh my gosh. <laughs> All right. Snack. All right, Daniel. Our responsorial psalm is from Psalm 93, verse 1, then 1 through 2, and then 5. And the response is coming from 1A. And in the second reading is Revelation. Are you Jamaican now? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our... Surfing has gotten it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. vacation has made us all feel tropical today um, And so our gospel is coming from the gospel of John Because Lord Mark, which we're usually in, is so short It's, uh, it's what did you say another time? You said it was like half The gospel, The year of Mark is like half Mark and half just other stuff Yeah, because they're, they're, they're just trying to like fill it in Because they're <laughs> like, I don't know, what do we do with Mark? Mark is has got a lot of depth, but not a lot of length Well, see, this is the thing, man Wait, let me just say the reading really quick Oh no, are you moving on to he something else? You already did it no, I didn't. Didn't you? Nope. What Trust is it? me. It's from John chapter 18, verse 33b through 17. 17? You mean 37? Whatever. It's the same thing. <laughs> no, it's not the same thing. Yes, 37. Sorry. Can't you have 33b through 37. Got it. Okay. Dude. <sighs> Daniel. Okay. So as I was studying uh, last week for the problem biblique. You studied last week? Yeah. Just to get ahead of the game? No, cool. no, no. I studied for my homily. Oh. I listened to the lanky guys, I, though we Got didn't it. do one. I um, I was going through and gotcha. I've always been fascinated with the idea of the Son of Man because we're in mm. Daniel. Daniel's super interesting because um, there's an, a lot of cool context. Ironically enough, I guess it's ironic, technically. We're not in the Gospel of Mark this week. Right. But Mark has the, Jesus uses the term son of man for himself in the Gospel of Mark more than any other Gospel. Right. I don't know if he even uses it for himself in any other Gospel. I don't know either. But he does in Mark. It's the most common uh, way of referencing himself that he uses in Mark. Right. And it, which comes from Daniel. Which comes from Daniel, which is actually, uh, according to uh, the lovely thesis of Tim Gray, which is seriously powerful. Right, which you is, just had it. There it is. Yeah, the temple in the Gospel of Mark. Which you had that out, and I was like, oh, no, did you study for Mark? We're not in Mark. <laughs> I know. It's just me. <laughs> you looked at me, and you were like, did you And you totally... were like, Daniel, it's cool. It's, it's cool. Daniel. Daniel. Well, well, because I just remembered, <laughs> I remember how, how hardcore he went into mm. um, the... The um, I mean, basically, you have the four beasts. Yeah. You've got the. This is, Tim's where I learned all this stuff from. It was when I was teaching at the biblical school for the first year. I just studied under Tim, and I was like, "What do you say?" I know, and me, me too. Yeah, 
I mean, like he taught at seminary yeah. and, and like he went through intertextuality and I will tell you, he lit me up particularly about the, this idea of the son of man because yeah. it becomes at its ultimate place an oracle against the temple. Okay. Which is, Which is true. Okay. Keep going. Well, I was gonna, uh, talking about Daniel. Um, yeah, yeah. What All I have to say about Daniel is this. Th- this is a really, I mean, this is a profoundly important passage in Daniel. This was, I think, probably one of the best known passages in the book of Daniel. Well, one of the best known passages in the Old Testament, really, in the time of Jesus, or most used. It was frequently cited because this passage basically described not only the timing, but of what was going to happen when Messiah comes. When the Messiah shows up, which was everybody in the time prior to Jesus was waiting for, Daniel laid out, here's exactly what's going to happen. So you get this just before our reading here. You mentioned it. There's this vision that Daniel has. It's it's not, not ironically. He comes out of the lion's den. Remember, Daniel gets thrown to the lion's. And he survives. It's amazing. And then later that night, he has a, a nightmare about beasts. <laughs> You're like, oh, yeah, that's consistent. Right. Four beasts that wreak havoc. And then Which, they, they gather everybody in the temple. for a, a, And the Ancients of Days is brought forward. And, and we're going to actually go into a moment of judgment. Well, yeah. But before we get there, which is true, the, the, he actually asked for clarification on his dream. There happens to be an angel standing around. But this is convenient. If you're ever in a, in a weird dream or a nightmare, look and see if there's some angel hanging out that you can ask to explain it to you. <laughs> Because Daniel does. And he's like, oh, yeah, here's what the beasts represent. He's like, well, yeah, the beasts represent, they all represent great empires or great nations that are going to rise out of the earth. And so Daniel's living during the reign of the Babylonian Empire. So the first beast represents Babylon. And then come the Medo-Persians. And then comes Greece. And then he's shown this fourth beast that is so terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong and all this stuff. He can't even, you know, all the other beasts represent animals or represented by animals. And this one is just indescribable. And so everyone's like, oh, well, that's Rome. Because chronologically, Logically, it works out. Uh, it has seven horns, which represent a division of power, which actually happens historically in the Roman Empire, a division among seven or uh, ten governors. I mean, it, it's amazing. And it's scholar, secular scholars can't stand the book of Daniel because it, it's basically assumed that there's no way somebody could have known the depth and the exactitude of information that Daniel claims to have known before it happened. So surely somebody went back and had to write this all back in because there is no, it is so specific and so exact. There's no way somebody could have actually foretold that to which those of us who believe in the authority of scripture, are like oh, you better believe he did. Right. But so it lays out. So during the Roman empire, which is what Jesus was born into, all of this stuff is going to happen. And so it's, it's in the midst of this really chaotic moment, this kind of horrifying moment where there is a great, terrifying, exceedingly strong beast ruling the world that this scene takes place. Take it away, Father Peter. <laughs> Take it away. <laughs> now, then, of course, it says, and then during the visions, uh, as they uh, saw, I saw one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. Descending, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the, like, if you don't ever... <clears throat> Like Jesus, when he's actually around the charcoal fire, mm-hmm. he says, and then you will, and then I will come like the son of man. And they're like, wow, they rip out their, they rip their clothes and stuff. Oh, before the high priest. Before the high he's priest. before the high priest. Absolutely. Which, Ted Shree had a, had a funny quip about this. I don't remember this in a, a I, book or in a class. I, did I say temple? 
I, I don't know. I said, said the charcoal funny. fire, which yeah, yeah, yeah. was reminded me of the apostles eating right. breakfast on the sea. But but when he's on trial before Caiaphas, the high priest, right. which is actually happens just before what we get in John. So Jesus has two trials. He has the trial before the Jewish leaders, and then they put him on trial before the secular, the Roman leaders, which we're going to get this week. But while he's before Pilate, or I'm sorry, before the high priest, the Jewish high priest, he says, he actually takes this vision and he puts it into the second person singular. And he says, hey, guess what, high priest? You, second person, singular, you individually will see the Son of Man descending on the clouds. And you will witness all this stuff. As if to say, well, and the, the Ted is great. <laughs> he's like, he's called, he's, instead of the high priest, he's the high beast. And he's basically show, showing that Jesus is demonstrating that this beast is not just Rome, but it's all those who have turned against God and the Messiah that he's sending. And so the high priest is actually acting as the beast in that scene, which is why the high priest is so ticked off. And he tears his robes. And he's like, how dare, who do you think you are? Saying that because what this is going to go on to say, so this is a fascinating scene. He comes before, he comes down, he comes before the Holy One. He's given dominion and kingdom and glory and all this stuff forever and ever. Forever. I mean, it's but, an everlasting dominion that's not going to be taken away from him. But but there's a weird little sandwich that's happening in Daniel. Because just before this, we're described, we have described to us these horrible empires and this great beast who is destroying everything. And then one like the Son of Man comes on the clouds, receives kingdom and glory. And then immediately after that, it says that the Son of Man is going to be handed over to the beast, where he's going to actually be killed and destroyed and eaten by the beast. But he will come back, basically rise from the dead, victorious. And so the scene of the king, or the son of man rather, being given dominion and kingship is wedged in between the horrors that the beast is, is bringing about on the earth and the way that the son of man who is receiving his kingdom will be handed over to the beast. By, by the way, the Greek word for hand over, the verbal form is, is paradidus, which is actually a derivative of the name judus, whose name literally could be translated oh. the hander overer, the one oh. who hands over. And Jesus in the scene from Mark, has just been handed over to the high priest, which is why he's like, hey, guess what? And the priest is like, what do you think you are? Who do you think you are saying all this stuff as an accusation against me? Oh, he's wow. handed over to the beast where what's going to happen? He's going to be destroyed. And then he will rise again victorious. But the thing I took away from this, and I'll let you take it away. I mean, the this thing, is good. We're, uh, you're, 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 we're in it. Well, the thing I love about this, though, on a, on a very pastoral level, I mean, like I said, I was on vacation, so I tried not to look at social media, read the news. I didn't listen to talk radio every morning on the way to work, which I'm sure I was a much more delightful person to my family. But then, you know, you come back, and I was stuck on a plane for a little bit, and so I was flipping through the news. I'm just like, oh, everything's horrible, and the ecclesial news is horrible, and just everything is horrible, and just there's just so much darkness. And I just think there's a beauty to the fact that this moment of dominion and glory and hope is wedged in between the beast seeming to destroy everything. He's destroying everything before this. He seems to be destroying everything after this. But wedged in the middle is this icon of hope that says, no, no, no. Whatever happened before, whatever is about to happen, this is what's true. This is the truth. And I think that that true statement in the middle of these visions of Daniel, well, that's going to come back into play later on in John when this question of truth comes about. What Daniel is saying is even though all you see is darkness, the truth actually stands as an icon in the center of it. 
And mm. no matter what you see, I was, I, I saw, it was on Facebook this morning. Somebody, I don't even know the person. It was somebody that somehow, you know, was connected to me through something. And it was something about how the church is horrible and I'm never going to go to church again. And I hate the Catholic church and the magisterium is blah, blah, they've ruined everything. And I'm never going to, and it was just like this, ugh, this, this painful, like, ugh. and there's always a moment of like, oh man, there's some truth in what she's saying. But like at the same time, like, that's not cool. And I keep being reminded, and this is, this is what brought me back to this. That line has kind of become a mantra when Jesus says to his apostles in Matthew, right? Um, <laughs> when he says, uh, uh, the, the, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. If it wasn't going to constantly seem like the gates of hell were prevailing over the church, he wouldn't have needed to say that. Right. Yes. It's a statement of hope that, hey, guess what? It's going to look like the gates of hell are about to prevail against the church. Right. But just know that they won't. If that wasn't going to happen, if it wasn't going to look like that, he wouldn't have needed to point that out to us. Right. And I'm just reminded of that when I go back to Daniel in this, because all we get is this little vignette scene here of glory and kingdom and majesty. And we're like, oh, that's cool. But if you forget the context, you're, you're forgetting that it's sandwiched in between utter and complete darkness and seeming destruction. Which it's not. It's reminding you, don't forget what's actually true here. Right. Whew. Man. Mm. And 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 it's just an everlasting kingship. Yeah. This is and and that's actually that's actually what like we come down to a truth that is at the center, which is a person. It's not just an idea. Oh yes, this is so good. You're setting you're setting some things up so well, I think. Yep. Um so the Lord is king, he is robed in majesty. So Psalm 93, one of the things I, I looked up with Psalm 93 is the the grammar of it. And I, maybe maybe this is a big deal, maybe it's not, but I figured you'd get a kick out of this. Um, so what we get here in Psalm 93, and there, there's, there's two other psalms, and I can't remember off the top of my head, that actually use the same verbal form. But it says that the Lord is king, he's robed in majesty. But the word, and it's both in Hebrew and in Greek. So in the original Hebrew of this and in the Septuagint, the translation into Greek, it's still put in this form. We just don't have really the word in English. But when it says the Lord is king, we put that into noun form in the English, right? The Lord is king. King's a noun. But in Greek and in Hebrew, it's actually verbal. So literally what it says is the Lord kings. Or he is kinging, which we, I was thinking about this. And I'm like, do we not have a form of that? I mean, you could say the Lord reigns, but it's not quite the same thing. And even the translators, nobody was quite satisfied. Like we talked about God reigning and he reigns as king. That's true. But there's something just not quite sufficient about that than it is. No, it's not just that he reigns. Lots of kings reign. The Lord kings. He is kinging. Like if anybody's kinging, he's kinging. Yeah, and it was just—I like, got such a kick out of it that again, both in the Hebrew, it's a, it's the form of basileia in the Greek, and it's malach in the Hebrew. But they both use the verb form. That no, God kings. Like you've seen kings, and they reign, and they rule, and they do stuff. But this God doesn't just act like a king. He doesn't just rule. He kings. He's king in it. And I don't mean to take it too far, but I was just such a. It was such an interesting. Well, because it's interesting way to think about this. Yeah, because it, it, it takes the idea of the noun, mm. of of the re, of the personhood, the the kind of substantial idea of kingness, yeah. and then activates it. It's almost platonic. Yeah, right. Plato's whole idea that you can't have a tree without the idea of treeness. Right? There's a con- there's an abstract concept behind this. Yes, every tree is an example of tree. Jesus is not just a king; he is. King, 
That, does that make any sense? I'm getting I'm getting abstract. You're getting very abstract. Sorry, but I mean I in the verbal form, yes. I, I <laughs> think it's so funny that we have to actually describe it in such a way. But I, I dig it. I mean, and then he's robed in majesty, like that's just like you know how it's like seeing somebody do what they do and do it the best that they mm. can. Yeah, where they're just in flow, like like, me surfing. like, like Scott surfing. <laughs> Or Jordan, like, beating everybody on the basketball court. Yes, that's the same thing. You know. It's, it's, <laughs> Me and Jordan. You and Jordan. You're just like, you just look and you're like, there's something majestic and powerful about it. That's, that, that it, We should name a shoe after you. Let's name a shoe after you. Thank you. We're going to call it Air Jerusalems. <laughs> That's what we used to call my Tevas. I was very proud school. a few weeks ago to introduce my kids to Space Jam. Oh. Which, felt, which felt really right. Yeah, dude. Anyway. So, so um, I do have to say one other thing about Psalm 93 before we move on. Your stand, throne stands firm from of old? No. It's where it shows up in the uh, in the Psalter. Because remember, the Psalter is uh, is actually a... Ran- so all the all these psalms were written over the course of salvation history. David wrote some. You know, Some of them were composed post-exile. Some of them were composed by Solomon. They're all over the place. But, but the final editor put them together in such a way as to tell the story of salvation history. Hmm. And this is actually placed in the place where we're starting to think of how we lost the kingdom. How there was this king. His, he was David. And he was great. And it was amazing. And our kingdom stood. And it was powerful. And it was amazing. But then it was wiped out because of our sin and we lost our kingdom and we mm. lost our kingship and we lost our land and our our rule and all this stuff and that's actually where this one shows up because as we're lamenting the loss of our kings this is the reminder that no the lord kings he is the king par excellence so whoever you had sitting on that throne they're only meant to be an image of the greater god who is always kinging so this i can't say it with a straight face but it's also a reminder of whatever it, 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 it kind of reminds me of Daniel, that this moment of glory that shows up shrouded and sandwiched in darkness, that's actually what Psalm 93 is sort of doing in the Psalter as well, as this reminder of when everyone's like, oh man, we lost the kingship, we've lost everything. It's like, no, 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 you haven't lost anything, even though it looks like it. There is a truth that's far deeper than David and far bigger than Jerusalem. It is that the Lord is king. And he doesn't have the same kind of throne that David had or the same kind of of palace. It's different, and it's far greater than that. So it's significant where this shows up to me. Which brings me into this idea when we get into Revelation, uh, uh, that that when when Christ kings, when the king kings... I love it. I just think it's great. Me too. It makes me smile every time. That that you know how... um, when you when you've like this is so remarkable we have been drawn into Christ and because we are in Christ those good things that are done are all revelations of the nature of God that that there's a certain sense mm-hmm. in which we participate in the glory of God when we when we actually activate and allow ourselves to move in the spirit that it's uh it's it's a glimpse of the full uh, of the magnitude of God, not the full magnitude, but a proper. It's a glimpse. Yeah, it's a yeah. glimpse. It's it's and which is so interesting too, because we say that about the poor. The poor are actually with, Christ is with us and the mm. poor, so that when we see them, there's actually a, mm. this this powerful glimpse into the glory of God in the midst yeah. of this, and and so so it's like because it says um, we are priests for God our Father, uh, to Him be glory and power forever and ever. And he's coming on the clouds, which is interesting because that's actually the, the the combination of what we have with Daniel. And you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. So you actually have Absolutely. so you have this 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 moment from Revelation that we see 
being like like taken up into to actually how how we understand and how we see Christ liturgically but in reality but then in this personhood and how our participation in him actually makes a makes a glimpse of him take place i am the alpha and the omega says the lord the one who is and who was and who is to come the almighty the it's it's almost like it, it's like the fuller explanation of the tetragrammaton i am like yeah absolutely was is and will be that this is that this is who I am and that you're called actually into a participation in this, which is, which is wild that we could actually participate in the kingship of Christ and his priesthood. Yeah. And his prophecy, prophet, priest, and king. Yeah. Those are the threefold things that we all participate in, right? Yeah. Which comes from the Lutherans. Does it really? Yeah. Yeah. It was Martin Luther made a huge emphasis of that. Uh, and huh. the church took it up uh, uh, with- Rightly great, so. R- rightly so. Yeah. Over time. Yeah. Well, the other thing that's interesting to me about this this scene from Revelation, so we're at the very beginning of Revelation. This is what's called the, it's 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 termed the inaugural vision. So, and I, I, I forget if you mentioned this just now, but when John, the beloved disciple, is is writing this, when he's receiving this vision, he it actually says earlier that he's saying mass. Yeah. Did you say, you, you mentioned this was liturgical. I, I didn't, I didn't make put, it explicit but there. But to make it explicit, he's actually, he says, as I was saying mass, it says, as I was caught up in the, in the spirit on the Lord's day, which is uh, ancient, um, um, lingo, uh, not lingo, uh, idioms, not the word. Anyway, it's, it's language that's describing, it's how they spoke about saying mass. So he was saying mass on the island of Patmos where he's been exiled to. It was Sunday. And as he's in mass, he sees this. I, I honestly, and I, speaking of Lutherans, and I don't mean this in a negative, I don't mean it in a, in a condescending way whatsoever, but unless you're a Catholic, it's hard for me to understand how you can make any sense of revelation because all of these visions of revelation are taking place within a liturgical setting. And so you have priestly vestments and garments and incense and um, th- tr- just trappings of liturgy, which if you understand the Catholic sort of ethos of what mass looks like, then the vision actually finds a home. But otherwise, it's just so weird, which is why people have such a hard time with, uh, with the book of Revelation. So as he's saying mass, he sees this vision, which in this inaugural vision, number one, it's it's describing all these things about God. And it's actually using this formula of how you would actually address a king when he visited. It was, you know, it's, it's statements toward a king. But the other thing about this is that in, in, the, in the first lines, and this is common throughout all of Greek literature, uh, letters and writings and things like that. In the first lines of a text, you tend to get all of the themes that are going to get drawn out in the rest of the text. So we see this we see this kind of thing with Paul's letters, right? That you always get the key ideas, almost a table of contents in the first lines and the opening greetings. It'll be the keys to, for what you need to unpack everything else. So what John is saying is what you need to unpack everything else that's going to come later in this letter, which is going to get weird and crazy and there's going to be beasts and there's going to be dragons and it's going to get ugly and it's going to get scary. What you need to know in the midst of that is what I'm telling you right now, which is this is who the Lord is. This is who Jesus is. He is the one who is our king of kings. He freed us. He has made us kingdom of priests, like you said, and, and kings. He's coming amidst the clouds. Don't forget Daniel. Don't forget what happened at the crucifixion. Don't forget what happened at the trial. He's the alpha and the omega. He kings like no other king kings. <laughs> and now let's get on with the rest of the vision. Because that's actually what you need for a sane reading of this. So you don't read it and you're like, oh my gosh, the world's going to end and here's the Antichrist and everything's going to be destroyed. I mean, honestly, not only for us, but the, the original audience of the book of Revelation was probably a group of persecuted Christians, which so many of the audiences of the scriptures were. 
who need to know that despite how dark everything seems and how ugly everything gets and how much the beasts all seem to be winning in the world, that's not the truth. That's mm. not the reality. That's right. only what it looks like the reality is. Right. So don't forget the inaugural vision as we go on to this journey that's going to get really wild and woolly. Does that make any sense? Yeah, absolutely. Which is, which is, it fits then with the whole schema of the rest of these readings, I think. Big time. Okay. That's all I got. John. John, John, John. John, John, John. John. Dude, it's just kingship, man. Like... <laughs> <laughs> like I mean, when we're talking about Jesus is King of the Universe, man, He Man Sunday, like He Man Sunday, it's just it's yeah. I've been studying the stars a lot recently, yeah, and just uh, like uh, tell me more. Also, meaning I like turned on a, a, like a like a astronomy show on TV <laughs> two days ago. That's that's studying the stars. <laughs> that's good enough for me, man. Yeah, yeah. I went to the planetarium recently, and I've been thinking about the stars and and like. There is something so potent about, like the vast magnitude of the entirety of the universe. We call that vastitude. Vastitude of the universe. If we're making up words today, dude. The vastitude of the <laughs> of the of the universe is is absolutely so potent. And like to think, like, because somebody who speculated with me the other day, like, okay, if there's intelligent life elsewhere in the in the world, is Jesus Christ satisfactory for their salvation? Say that one more time. If there are as other intelligent life within ah. the universe, is Jesus Christ satisfactory for their salvation? That's and a tough one. That's a really tough one because we have to ask the question of like, what is human nature as compared to Zork nature or whatever? <laughs> like, you know, like it, it is 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 the defining characteristic of what is human reason and freedom. So like. Is in, in it, can Jesus' salvation extend to somebody merely because they exert the image and likeness of God in 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 reason and freedom? So, uh, relate me back. Did I did I bring me back home? Jesus is King, man. <laughs> I love it. I That's love all. It. I did. No, I just I just like radical speculation is really what it is. Jesus is King. He's King of the Universe because because really like he, here he's in front of Pilate and, and, and the, like the, he's, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I don't want to get hung. I don't want to go too far. But your question is such a fascinating one, which is it's a different matter. It is a different matter because Jesus Christ is King of the Universe, right? But do other did other intelligent life have the same sin that we had? Right. So he's still their king. Did he need to save them in the same way? I don't know. That's it. We don't. This is. This is, this is different. This okay. is massively speculative. And, and Which I kind of love. And I can't, I'm, I'm really holding myself back because I think it's a fascinating question. Yeah. But, I mean, because what, we, what we're going in. I mean, the vision of the throne room would be the same for us as it would be for the Zork nation. Absolutely. The question is, did our original, did the original sin of Adam and Eve affect the Zork nation? Not is Jesus their king or not. Wouldn't that be interesting? I've never that's, considered. That's, I think, the only consideration. Because he's the king of the universe. That's period. That's that's a done deal. What if intelligent life elsewhere remained within the graces of God? I don't know. because But we saw it talk about the universality of original sin and effect of all of creation. But did it affect the whole cosmos? I don't know. But then, but then, oh, are there okay. other other? Uh, is, oh, see, this is not good. Is other intelligent good life path. existing within a fallen state that then is redeemed now? I don't know. And then, does salvation uh, is it affected by the inverse square law? Does it have to travel <laughs> over space time, or I don't does know. it does it happen instantly because of its nature in relationship with eternity? So Pilate said to Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Are you the king of the Jews? Um, so I, I, okay. That aside, <laughs> no, but it, but it's going to come into play in a little okay, bit. Not I'm, quite in the same way. It's always I mean, going to be a stretch, but but like it well. always does it that way. Pilate said to Jesus, "Are you the king of the Jews?" Um, there's so much that's been delved into or speculated and wondered about with Pilate, and I I tend to be, I tend to lean a little more sympathetic toward Pilate. And there's this balance in reading this because there's something very human here. There's something that I, 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 I go back and forth between. Is Pilate really curious or is he just a bureaucrat doing his job? You know, when he said, are you the king of the Jews? He, he's sort of required by Roman law to do that. OK, here's the charge. He actually there is a Roman law that you are required to read the charge against you. So he's doing that. He's stating the charge. And actually in Roman law, this fixed in this. Uh, a prosecutor would actually be required to three times ask the defendant to state um, clarification of the charges against them. So he has to repeat the charge three times, which Pilate essentially does in this back and forth, this exchange. So is Pilate just a bureaucrat who's kind of doing his job asking the questions that's required of him to ask? Or does he actually have a real curiosity of, is he just dismissing Jesus? He's like, you're not my problem, but I don't want a revolution on my hand, but I really don't want to deal with you. Or is there something that's actually wondering? Because Jesus's response to Pilate don't fit with Pilate's questions of him. So he says the first time, are you the king of the Jews? This is the charge that's literally been handed to me on the paper from the Sanhedrin. So I'm going to read the charge. Is this what you are? All right. How do you respond to these charges? And Jesus answered. Do you say this on your own or have others said it about me? <laughs> have others told you about me? And he's probably just thinking, he's like, no, it's literally on this sheet of paper that they handed me to read at the trial. I, I don't know. And maybe I, I don't, I, I just wonder about that. Um, and he's like, cause he answers, he's like, I'm not a Jew. I, I don't care. He essentially is saying, I really don't care. I'm not a Jew. Am I? And it's your own nation. It's your own chief. You're the Jew. And it's your people and your chief priests that handed you over to me, that paradeduced you over to me. Um, and so he's like, what have you done? Time number two, list the charges, defend yourself. Um, what did you do? Where am I? And Jesus answered. And this is where I think everything kind of changes. He says, my kingdom does not belong to this world. Now I even, I didn't do, I didn't do that vast of research, but a couple of the things I picked up, I was looking for something and I didn't see it anywhere because I think this is where, and Somebody else might have said this. I might be completely wrong, but this is where I'm going to go out on my own limb here because I think we have a pretty profound misunderstanding of what Jesus is saying here based on something else he says everywhere. When Jesus says, my kingdom does not belong to this world, what we tend to do with that line, and this is what Christians have done for centuries, is 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 like a is a is a bifurcation yes. somehow that uh, Jesus doesn't have anything to do with here, and we're just longing to go to heaven, and that's it. Yes, and you know that's one of my big pet peeves. Like that is not Christianity. That's right. never been Christianity, and I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. And when he says my kingdom does not belong to this world, he's not saying my kingdom does not belong to the earth, or my kingdom does not belong to you know, this, this planet or this space or this geography. He's not talking about that. It's the world, this world, that terminology, which is very specific, gets used throughout uh, first century Jewish writings in, um, uh, usually in tandem or in, uh, si- si- synonymously, that's the word. <laughs> synonymously. Synonymously with the idea of this age. The present age, there's a, there's a paradigm in Judaism of Jesus' time that, that preexisted it for about a century or so about um, the two ages. Have we talked about the two ages before? No. I think it's the most important paradigm to understand if Jesus is going to make any sense. 
Okay. The two ages basically said this. The the ancient Jews understood that the world kind of existed in terms of two ages, Ionios, which were often called two worlds, which didn't mean geographic worlds. It meant ages or like this space and time place. But the idea was when Adam and Eve sin, basically when, when sin enters in the world, when this brokenness happens, the original state that we were, and this is very Catholic, right? The original state that we were all meant to exist in, which was this, this explicit union with God, this um, immortality in a certain sense, at least in the sense that the sense that there wasn't this veil between us and God, the sense that we didn't have this tendency towards sin, the, the sense that things were meant to be good. We were meant to be in those four relationships, us and God, us and ourselves, us and the people around us, us and the rest of creation. Things worked. Things were good. Sin breaks that. It damages those relationships and it plunges us into what's called the old age or sometimes it's called the present age. And you see both Jesus and Paul using those terms, which meant the world as it seems now. The world defined by sin, the world defined by chaos and corruption and warfare and and concupiscence and darkness and everything else, the present age. But what everybody believed is that, or what the ancient Jews believed, is that there was going to come a time when God would step in and set things right, when he would fix what we had messed up. And all of a sudden, the present age or the age, the, the, the current age, the dark age would turn over to a new age, the age to come or the new uh, new age is anachronistic now. But but that's the idea, yeah. the world to come, which would be not someplace other than here, but a world in which sin is forgiven, a world in which death is eradicated, in which fear is taken away, in which darkness is relieved. Which, which is the proper order of the temple. Yes, which that's is, what the temple was all pointing to. It was all pointing is this coming to, age, but it could not satisfy it. Right, because it was simply a it was simply a, a prototype right. of the real thing. Yeah. So this is the Jewish idea, and so when Jesus says my kingdom doesn't belong to this world, he doesn't mean oh it's only up in heaven. I think he means my kingdom doesn't belong to this age. It belongs to the age to come. It belongs to the world after salvation. It belongs to which what would, God is going to do. Which makes sense of the language he uses last week. The sun's going to be dark and the moon's going to yes. go away. The, the stars will all fall from the sky. And the temple's going to have a judgment, which is saying yes. the microcosm, the world is over it as you know it. Yes, that's exactly. The world as you know it is over. Right. Which is not just the world, period. Now we're all going to float off to the to the sky. The world as you know it, the age as you know it, the the things as they exist now. I mean, the whole theme of the Bible is really nothing. If God is God, if Jesus is king, if the Lord is king, if God kings, then nothing has to remain as it is. Right. That's the idea. If you, if you remember nothing else from the entirety of the Bible, that's the message. Nothing has to remain as it is if God really is king. And so what he's saying is my, my kingdom doesn't belong to this age. My age is coming and the world is going to be flipped upside down in about a day and a half or so. Or maybe it's that day. I'd Flip it for real. You know what I mean? Yep. And the new age will be entered in, the new world. But he says, if my kingdom did belong to this world, my attendants would be fighting to keep me from handed over to the Jews, which is ironic because... Remember what Peter did a couple hours before this? Cut the dude's ear off. He was fighting to keep him from doing this. And so Jesus isn't just saying, oh, it's none of these people. It's not this stuff. He says, no, the state of things is changing. The state of you, the state of Peter, the state of the apostles, the state of Pilate, all of it is going to be flipped upside down. Mm. No, there was somebody who was actually fighting. And who knows what the other apostles were doing when Peter was cutting the guy's ear off. But yeah, no, people were fighting. But he says, as it is, my kingdom is not here. Yet. You almost, I'm putting words in Jesus' mouth. Right. But I almost imagine the yet on his lips because it's coming real the soon. The yeti. The yeti. And so Pilate said to him, then you are a king. 
And that's where um, Jesus answers, you say that I'm a king, which has been, there's been so much ink spilled on what Jesus is talking about. Of course, (laughs) Jesus is a king, but it's almost like he's saying, yeah, that's your terminology. I'll I'll let you use your terminology, but it's so much bigger than what you think of when you, when you think of King Pilate, you're thinking of Caesar, you're thinking of Caesar Augustus, you're thinking of him sitting on that throne, wielding his military, that if you mess up, you're going to be hung on a cross like everybody else, that you're terrified of that you're working in the bureaucracy of. Yeah, you're using this terminology, fine. Use the terminology. But what I am is so vastly beyond what you think of when you think of king that, yeah, I'll let you use that terminology, but that's your word. That's your word for who I am. I don't think Jesus is sort of anyway trying to, to wash himself away from his own kingship. But he's like, you say that I'm a king. That's your word. That's not doesn't come close to capturing what it actually it is. And he says, for this reason, I was born and I came into this world to testify to the truth. And then he says, everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And I'm thinking back to Daniel at this moment that we are literally living in now when the son of man has descended on the clouds, has been handed over to the beast, is about to be eaten and destroyed by the beast, but who also knows that that's going to usher in an entirely new age in which his kingdom will be seen for what it is and his dominion will reach from sea to sea and it will be glorious and everlasting. And therein comes where the Jewish paradigm breaks down. And this is my last thought. Okay. The Jewish paradigm suggested, the two ages, suggested that we live in this thing called the present age where it's defined by sin and death and chaos. God's going to step in and he's going to set everything right. He's going to forgive sin. He's going to eradicate death. He's going to usher in hope and lightness and everything is going to be great. So my question is, right now, today, in 2018, do we live in the present age or in the age that is to come? This is what nobody expected. Yeah, we, we live in the present age. You I sure? mean, the, the age to come, sorry. Well, that's where it's a little bit tricky. No, I mean, it, it's becoming not yet. Aha, but that's what nobody expected. Everyone sort of anticipated that it would just be a clean break. God would come in. He would punish the bad guys. He would vindicate the good guys. Darkness would go away. Light would rain. Forgiveness would be there. Sin is gone. Death is no more. Everything is fine. But what we live in is what's called the turn of the ages. We live in the in-between. And I don't think anybody expected that there would be an in-between time while we still experience all of the trappings of the present age or the old age of sin. But we actually exist in the age that is to come. It just doesn't look like the age to come yet. That's where we get the terminology of the already but not yet. I think it was Oscar Coleman, who was a 19th century philo- uh, theologian who came I up with that terminology. Feel like, I feel like it's almost like we understand the book. We're like living the book of Job. We are literally in the middle of it. Right. And we can't. We're, we know the end, but it's really hard to understand how that can be. Right. It's, like, it, it's also like we're living in the middle of Daniel. Oh, I know how this story is supposed to end, but my gosh, I'm still terrified of the ending. Yeah. And this is where Revelation is so important. Revelation, going back to that inaugural inaugural vision where where John is shown all these things about God, I mean, given to a people who are being persecuted. Because we, we as Christians, and this is, I think, the biggest problem of Christianity. I'm using a lot of big hyperbolic statements. Yes, today. you are hyperboliking. But I do think this is a big problem. We live as Christians as though we genuinely don't know how this story is going to end. Uh-huh. Don't we kind of? We're like, oh my gosh, the culture of death, it's winning. Satan's taking over. The church is going to collapse. Every What are we going to do? And I mean, not that we don't have to work and pray very hard, but we act as though we really don't know if good or evil is going to win in the end. And we're really <laughs> terrified that evil might win, right? 
Isn't that, I mean, the, the, and me too, I'm not accusing anybody, but we really do act as though we don't know the end of the story. And everything really is still hanging in the balance. We're not sure how it's going to end. When we're being told, no, you know it, you're still, you still have to deal with the sufferings and the darkness and all of the trappings of the present age. But I think most of Paul's letters are trying to convince a group of very early Christians that even though it feels and looks like the present age, you exist in the age to come. And unless you live like it, the rest of the world who has no hope has no chance. Because if you don't demonstrate that evil does not have the final word, that we know how the story ends, that there is reason to hope, then the rest of the world, who is hopeless, doesn't stand a chance. Right. If the one people who have all of the reason to hope don't live as though there's hope or don't live as though they know that the answer is actually, that the war has been victoriously won, then the world's hosed. Right. And so, again, what are these readings? They're all belonging to the schema of showing God kings like nobody else. It's so far beyond even our idea of kingship. But yet, none of it feels like it. From Daniel, we're in the middle, just before he's handed over. In Revelation, we're just about to enter into all the beasts and the dragons and everything else. In the psalm, it's being given or it's put in the psalter at a point where we've actually lost all of our kings, and it doesn't seem like there's any hope. And then here in Jesus' time, he's about to go to Calvary, and everyone will abandon him. And it's ironic, it's not ironic, but it's, it's, it's amazing, it's profound, that all four of these readings, the statement about Jesus' kingship, is coming most strongly before it's about to get most dark. Yeah. That seems to be the case, which is not coincidental here in the Northern Hemisphere, where we're entering into the time of year where it actually is the most dark, literally, actually physically. We're going into the darkest season where we're reminded about the brightest light. It's not coincidental, I think, that our part of the world celebrates Christmas when we do, because in the darkest moment, that's when Christ's light shines brightest. Right. Oh, holy light. Night. Night. Light. Anyway. Oh, man. That was that was a seriously awesome diatribe, dude. <laughs> sorry, to, <laughs> sorry to diatribe you. It is, it's good, man. I went on a diatribe and lost a few pounds, so. Diatribe. <laughs> uh, hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Mm. Let's, uh, let's uh, get back together for first Sunday of Advent. What let's get back think? together next Tuesday. That's what I'm saying. Oh, that's what you're saying. In honor of the first Sunday of Advent. <laughs> we'll have a cup of coffee. We'll have you a can, cup of coffee. You can ditch work for about 40 minutes. And Luke 21. Luke 21. Up in his hizzle, dude. In the Facebooks. Yeah. Be there. Be square. Don't be square. Be there. Be, be there and be square. Or be cool. Or rectangular. Mm. All right. All Goodbye. right. <laughs> Goodbye. The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org slash A-I-C-T. You can find the Lanky Guys at lankyguys.org, and you can send us an email at lankyguys at thomascenter.org. Thanks, everyone.